After someone tells you that they'll do something, how long does it take before you start to doubt they're actually going to do it? How much time elapses where you give them the benefit of the doubt? They told me they will do that. They haven't done it yet. How long is it before you start to doubt they will actually do what they told you they would do? Probably depends on the person, doesn't it? If it's someone who has told you stuff before, if someone has told you, I, will, I promise I will do this or that, and they've let you down multiple times in the past, it probably doesn't take very long for you to start doubting they're actually going to do what they said, right? In fact, as soon as the promise is coming out of their mouth, you probably doubt you're going to see it realized. Whereas if it's someone that you know and you trust and you love and you can depend on, it'll take longer, but eventually, right? Eventually, if weeks turn into months, turn into years, you will doubt they're actually going to do what they said they were going to do, right? What if God is the one who made the promise? How long do we have to wait before we can rightly begin to doubt that what God said he would do, he will actually do. How many, how many years have to go by before we're okay to start doubting? Have you ever heard this verse quoted? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. You ever heard that? It's very often taken out of its context and used to support things that's not what Peter was really talking about. Peter wrote that verse, and you know what he was talking about? The the dependability of God's promises and how time doesn't do anything to the reliability of God's promises. Peter said, with God, a day in his promises, it doesn't matter if God told you that promise personally yesterday or if it's been a thousand years, right? Like if God showed up and promised you something and it was just 24 hours ago, you would still depend on that promise, right? Just like if someone you trusted told you he or she would do something for you, it was just yesterday they told you they would do it, you still feel like you can trust that. With God, after a thousand years go by, it, his word and his promises are just as sure as they were the day he promised what he promised. The passage of time does not touch the sureness of God's promises. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God made some promises. That was a long time ago. God made some promises to a man named Abram. He renamed him later Abraham. He promised Abraham I'm going to give you lots of descendants that are going to become a nation. I'm going to give that nation a homeland. And then God said, I promise, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth through your one family. Now, the first two-thirds of those promises are just irrefutable facts in the Old Testament. Everybody knew how God fulfilled those promises. That nation came out of Abraham's descendants is the nation of Israel. And the land God promised Israel is called the promised land, right? It's it's Palestine. We knew that. But that third one, 
God promised to bless the whole, all the families of the earth through Israel. Israel didn't know how God would pull that off. Do you know what I think the consensus was? What I think the consensus was in Israel during the Old Testament? I think Israel thought Israel was the blessing. God gave us the law. God showed us in the scriptures how he wants people to live. So we are the blessing. If we can just get people to join Israel and live as best they can the way God wants them to live, that's the blessing. I think that's the general consensus in Israel, that they were the blessing. But then a guy named Paul came along, and Paul began teaching what we've been studying in the book of Romans so far. Paul has been teaching Israel, God's blessing does not come through the law. So Israel, under the law, can't be the way God fulfilled that promise to bless all the families of the earth. We know now that promise has been fulfilled. God created Israel so that Israel could give us the Savior, Jesus. That's how God blessed all of the families of the earth. But that was a new idea in Paul's day. And so when Paul begins to teach Jewish people, God's not blessing the earth through like the country of Israel necessarily. It's not if everybody just becomes Jewish and accepts Judaism and converts to following the law. That's not the blessing. That was hard for Jewish people to understand, to believe, to swallow. Jewish people, Paul knows, has, have questions. And what we're going to see today is Paul's going to ask the last rhetorical question. It's like the Jews in his audience are raising their hands uh, mentally, saying things like, wait a minute, Paul, so is God just done with us? If we are not the blessing, are we no better off than our pagan neighbors before God? That's going to be the last question, and then Paul is going to launch into today the summary of the first section of the body of the book of Romans. So when I say on the screen here that, the, uh, that this, this sermon is, is really the summary of that section one, that's because that's what Paul is going to do. When we read Romans 3, 9 through 20, it is Paul's summary of everything he's written from Romans 1, 18 to Romans 3.20. And in that, in that section, he has taught us that we are wholly unholy. We are completely unrighteous. We need rescued, saved, redeemed. Let's read our passage today. It starts with the, uh, the, the last rhetorical question raised by Jewish people. And then Paul is going to launch into his summary of this first section. All right, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Read this way. Here's the, here's the, the last rhetorical question, two-parter. So what then? Are we better than they? That's the, 
That's the question. So, so what are you saying, Paul? Are we Jews, are we no better off than our pagan Gentile neighbors? That's sort of the question. Are we better than they? And Paul's answer goes like this. Not at all. Why? For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, gonna, now Paul's going to read a bunch of the Old Testament to us, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now that he's done quoting the Old Testament, Paul concludes this section this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's how Paul concludes the first section of the body of this book of Romans. Again, it starts with this rhetorical question the Jews in his audience would have wanted to ask. So what are you saying here, Paul? Are you saying that we Jews, individually, before God, we are no better off than these wicked, godless pagans around us? Paul says, if that's what you hear me saying, you are reading me loud and clear. Paul has granted that there are some advantages to being born Jewish. He gave one so far, he'll give more later in the book. But the the advantage he has said is, if you're born into a family that accepts the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative, you're born into a Jewish family who accepts that this is the word of God, you at least have access to the right information that points to Jesus. But individually, if you think because you were born into the right family, you know what God says is right and wrong, and you try your your best to live according to what God thinks is right, if you are depending upon that to make yourself okay before God, you are no better off than, than some godless, pagan, polytheistic, whatever that worships the God of this and the God of that and the God of some other thing. God's going to give his first summary statement of this whole section of the book of Romans in verse 9. It's his direct answer to this question. So what? Are we we no better off than the other people around us? And Paul says, certainly not. No, you're not. You know why? Well, we have already charged. Right here he says, this is what I've been saying since chapter 1, verse 18. Jews and Greeks, that's Paul's way of saying everybody, Jews and non-Jews, we are the same in this. We are all under sin. 
Being under sin is our problem as human beings. Do you know that our problem is not just that we have committed sins? Though that is a problem. It would be enough of a problem. But our problem is actually worse than that. Paul doesn't say Jews and Greeks alike have committed sins. He says Jews and Greeks alike are under sin. We don't commit sins, and that's what makes me a sinner. We are sinners. We're under sin. That's why we commit sins. Does that make sense? That we are under sin is the cause of the individual sins we have committed. We're broken. Paul's going to hash this verse out in the third section of this book. He's going to say things like this in verses 5 and 6. Paul's going to say that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, somebody, the way we are born before someone becomes a believer in the gospel, which frees us out from under sin. Paul said sin, he will say sin rules over us. He will say it reigns over us the way a king reigns over a country. It's our boss. He'll say sin enslaves us. He'll say sin is the master over people who are still trying to be good enough to be accepted by God. That's the bad news of our human condition. We're born busted, broken. It's our nature. We do it naturally. It's what we are. And Paul tells his Jewish brothers and sisters in this audience, I want you to know you are just as much under sin as is any Gentile. Now, is that a popular message? It's not. In fact, there's a lot of people who will disagree with what I just said. If Paul is correct, people are not naturally, inherently good. Most people are good. You can hear that said a lot. Paul would say, that's not true. Most people, all people, are born under sin. We're a wreck. We're a mess. He will say later, The only thing that will get us out from under sin is is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross. That's not a popular message. Paul knows it's not a popular message. It's certainly not a popular message when he says this to Jews, a Jewish person who knows the law of God, what God says is right, what God says is wrong. I try my darndest to do the good stuff and my darndest to not do the bad stuff. I've been doing it my whole life. I go to the temple. I do the sacrifices. And you say before God, Paul, that I'm just as much under sin as my godless pagan neighbor. So here's what Paul's going to do. Paul's going to say, this is true, but don't just take my word for it. This is not a new message. And so Paul's going to give his longest Old Testament reading right here. Most of this passage today, you'll notice on the screen, you notice it was all in all caps. That's not because Paul is screaming at us. It's because he was quoting the Old Testament. And that's what the New American Standard does with Old Testament quotes. And and so Paul's going to pull out part of the Old Testament. He quotes from at least six places. 
that said before what he has said so far in the book of Romans. We're broken. We're under sin. It reigns over us. So Paul begins by quoting uh, Psalm 14 to tell us that sin is a universal problem. Universal means everyone is under sin. It could not be more plain or more clear. As I read this again, check out how many people Paul says are not under sin. Just as it is written, Paul says, there's no one righteous. How many? Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All people have turned away. And together they, that's all people, have become worthless or futile. There's no one who shows kindness, not even one. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That sounds like a problem, and it is. The Bible's really clear. I'm going to say more about this in a couple of weeks, but the Bible's really clear that the requirement for eternal life is that you be righteous. Nobody's getting in to eternal life unless you are deemed righteous by God. According to Paul and Psalm 14, written by David, how many people are righteous? No one. What about one? No, not even one, just in case you missed it. Jesus Christ is the only one. There's no one righteous. That's, we get Jesus' righteousness. Come back next week and I'll tell you about that. Paul says there's, quoting David, there's no one who understands. Understands what? There's no one who understands that our greatest need is to seek God. Does that sound like anything Paul has said so far in the book of Romans? Paul says our problem as human beings, we've bought the lie. We've, we've suppressed the truth and bought the lie. The truth is there's a God out there. My best life would be spent praising, honoring, glorifying, and thanking the one who created me. Isn't that what Paul, that's the truth. There's no one who understands that truth because there's no one who actually seeks God on their own naturally apart from the gospel. Why? What do we seek? What do we pursue? What do we chase? Us. What makes us happy? What makes us comfortable? What gives us a good time? What makes me impressive? What makes me popular? That's what we pursue. That's the human condition. It's universal. Everybody is turned away from seeking the one we should seek to understand. You know what else we don't understand? Paul says there's no one who understands. Part of our problem, every single one of us has at least a little bit of Eddie Haskell in us. Now that may be the most dated reference I have ever used. What show was Eddie Haskell on? Leave it to Beaver, right? Remember, he's the the friend that when the parents were around, he tried to be really good and act like he was a very moral, upstanding young man. And as soon as the parents left, he became Eddie Haskell again, right? We all had a little bit of Eddie Haskell in us growing up, didn't we? You behaved differently when your parents were around, right? You know what we don't understand? We don't understand how real God is. We don't understand what God's omnipresence 
means that he really, he is just as much in the room with us as our parents ever were. And we don't understand the seriousness of our sin. And if we did, we would behave differently. We've turned away. We've become worthless. Paul called it futile. We try to make ourselves the point of a life the God of the universe created. What could be more futile and worthless than that? There's no one kind enough. There's not even one. So that's Paul's statement from the Old Testament, borrowed from David, that sin is a universal problem. Now Paul is going to give some proof of that. Paul says, you don't believe me? You don't believe David? Well, here's some proof that sin is a universal problem. Do you not believe me that everyone is under under sin? Paul says, just listen to us talk. Listen to the words that come out of our mouths. Of all people, quoting the psalmist, Paul says, their throats are in open graves, they deceive with their tongues, and the poison of asps is under their lips. This verse reminds me of something Jesus said. Whoever this hypothetical person is, the psalmist was talking about, did they really have a problem with their throat or their tongue or their lips? If they went and saw a doctor and got an MRI, would the doctor say, oh man, your throat is a mess? No, what, where is their problem if their words are this jacked up? What did Jesus say? Where, did, where do our words come from? From our hearts. One time Jesus was talking to a bunch of guys, I won't tell you the whole story, but he called them snakes, which is not a compliment. And he said, basically, it's amazing you ever say anything good. Because you're so evil. Then he said, out of the mouth flows what fills the heart. Here's why this passage reminds me. Look at what the psalmist does in this poem. It's so awesome. Notice, everybody, point to your throat. Right? Point to your tongue. Point to your lips. Did you get closer? You went from, from closer to your heart too closer to where the words come out. Did you notice that? Your problem is down here. And our words that are poisonous, full of death, come out of our mouths. Different psalmist said, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. You know, in the Old Testament, cursing was not just saying naughty, was not saying naughty words. That's not what it meant. Saying naughty words is a problem. Don't let any filthy speech come out of your mouth. But in the Old Testament, to curse was the opposite of to bless. To bless someone is to speak well of them and to build them up and to encourage them. And to curse is to tear somebody down and say stuff that hurts and hope that bad stuff happens to somebody else. Paul says, you don't think sin's a universal problem? Listen to the poison that comes out of people's mouths. Our words are full of, of cursing, of tearing people down in bitterness and grudges and hoping somebody else hurts by what I say. You know why that's a proof of the universal nature of sin? Because it shows us what's in our black hearts. But Paul doesn't stop there. He quotes Isaiah. 
He says, if, if you don't believe me that sin is a universal problem, look around. Of all humanity, Paul says, their feet are swift to shed blood. They leave a swath of ruin and misery behind them. And they don't even know the way of, of peace. Now, Paul's point is not universally every single person is in a hurry to commit acts of bloody violence. That's not what Paul is saying. He doesn't say every single person has left, leaves a swath of ruin and misery behind them. But Paul just says, you don't believe me sin's a universal problem? Today, Paul would say, like, read the paper. Right? Read the news. Look at the terrible awful things people are willing to do to other people. And do you know why people hurt other people to the point where they shed their blood? Do you know why people leave ruin and misery in their past? Do you know why? Because I know why. Do you know what people are chasing? When they think, they make the decision consciously or subconsciously, I'm going to kill another human being. They're just chasing what they really think is going to make them feel better. They've made the point of their own lives. They made themselves the point of their own lives, and they think, my life will somehow get better if I attack, hurt, murder, whatever. That's all it is. I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you say that, but people actually think, I'm going to feel better if I kill that person. It sounds nuts when you say it out loud, but that's, that's what's happening. We're all this same kind of bent. We may not go to this extreme, but for most of us, we can tell if I act out on this evil thought, my life will probably get worse and I really want my life to get better. So the reason we don't go this far, I don't think naturally it's because of our inherent goodness or morality we just want our life to get better, and most of us can stop ourselves short and go, man, my life's going to get worse if I do that terrible thing. I'm not sure we know what we would be capable of. If we ever got to the point where we thought, I think I'd feel better if I did fill in the blank. It's a universal problem. Verse 18, Paul gives the root cause of all of our problems. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The New English Bible translates this this way. Reverence for God doesn't even enter their thoughts. That's mankind's problem. We have enough proof, Paul has told us, to know there's a God out there I'm accountable to, but we live as if that's not true. I just put him out of my mind and chase what I want. Remember what Solomon said was the beginning of wisdom? What did he say? It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God. So if what Paul says is true here, we can't even, on our own, we can't even get the beginning of wisdom, the first step. We can't even get pointed in the right direction. And then Paul concludes this first section of the body 
uh, of the book of Romans this way. I call these last two verses, verses the conclusion of the conclusion of the first section of the body of the book of Romans. Everything we've read so far is how Paul concludes this first section that tells us how broken we are, tells us our need for the gospel. He's told us not only are we headed for condemnation, but he's told us God will be right when we head there. God will be correct to send us all out of his presence forever and ever and ever. And then he concludes the section this way. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that's Jews, whatever's written in the Old Testament law, it says to Jews, why? So that every mouth might be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's what verse 19 says. Paul says, before I close this section, I want to tell you why God wrote the law. First, in general, Paul says, God wrote the law to Israel so that everybody in every nation everywhere will know they're in real trouble with God. You know how the law does that? Here's how. God, because he promised to send a savior, he had to pick some family. He chose Abraham's family, built this nation, called them Israel. They went into slavery in Egypt. God saved them out of slavery. Then after they were saved, he gave them the law and told them how to live. He's like, look, here, Moses, write this stuff down. Read this to people. And say, this, this is what human righteousness will look like. Now that you are a, a, a saved person, this is how you're supposed to live. And if you want to be righteous in my sight based on your behavior, this is what it will look like. How did the Israelites do at living righteously according to God's law? They went over. Like none of them. They couldn't do it. You know what that says to the rest of the world? To, to us Gentiles? Here's what it says. If God could pick one family and dictate, here, write a prescription, here's how I want you to live, my special people, and they couldn't pull it off, how much hope do the rest of us have? None. Because here is Paul's reason for God sending the law. Verse 20, for no one is declared righteous before God by the works of the law. No one is ever going to stand before God and be good enough based on how they live. If, please, I am begging you to consider this. If you really think the reason God's going to let you into heaven is because you've tried really hard to be good, I want you to listen what the Apostle Paul just said, no one is declared righteous before God by the works of the law. It's not happening. And then Paul says, because that's not why God sent the law. Through the law, Paul says, comes the knowledge of sin. Do you know why God sent Israel the law? Not so they would know how to get into heaven. He actually saved them before he gave them the law. 
God sent Israel the law to show them and everyone else we cannot be good enough. That's the purpose of the law. A guy named uh, J.B. Phillips, he has a paraphrase of the whole New Testament. And at this section, he says this, the law, excuse me, he says, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. That's why God gave the law. When we lived in Smith Center, Kansas, we had a house that was built in 1922. Old house. And uh, Rachel would find something that she wanted, you know, displayed, put up in the house. I remember one, uh, or a, like a, a laundry rack or a shelf or something. And I'm not very good at getting things level anyway. But a couple times, I actually got things hung on the wall and I put the, the level on there. And man, that old bubble lined up right between the two little lines. And I was like, man, that was great. And then we stood back and looked at it. And you know what we found? That looks terrible. You know why? Because nothing's square in a house that was built in 1922. If you've had an old house, you know this. None of the lines are level. Nothing's plumb. Everything's all jacked up. And so when I would hang something that was actually level, it just showed how crooked the rest of the house was. That's what the law does for, our, for, for us. It is plumb, straight, level. And if we hold our lives up to the law, we will see that we are all kinds of jacked up. That's why the law is actually a part of God's grace. The law is part of God's grace. You know why? Because you need rescued from your human condition. You're under sin. But nobody's going to accept help they don't think they need. So God sent a list written down. Here's what human righteousness would look like. Hold that up to yourself and see how you've done. And if you do that honestly, you know what conclusion you will come to? I'm in real trouble if this is what God expects. That's why God sent the law to begin with. He didn't send the law just so he would be right in sending people to hell. Though he will. He sent the law so that people could come to understand if he doesn't rescue me from my own condition, I will be condemned forever and ever. And that's where we are left. At the end of the, the first section of the body of the book of Romans, we are under sin. We are, as this slide that I just ripped off of the internet somewhere says, we are wholly unholy. We are completely unrighteous. It doesn't do me a bit of good to be this much more righteous than you or some other person because I'm under sin. Which is why I cannot wait for next week's sermon. Like, I literally can't wait. I got to give part of it away right now. The first two words of the second section of the body of the book of Romans are two of my favorite words in the whole Bible. Paul has spent 
from Romans 1.18 to 3.20, hammering us over the head with, please understand, you're lost, you're sinful, you're broken, you're dirty, you're dark, you're futile, you're, you're all that stuff. And if you're going to stand before God based on your righteousness, you're in real trouble and you have no hope and no help. And then he says, but now. But now. And then he's going to explain what God did apart from the law to rescue dirty, ungodly sinners like you and like me. And I... I couldn't have planned this out, but I'm so glad where we got right now is, 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 is a communion Sunday. Because before we get to next week's passage, we're going to demonstrate the but now. I hope by this point in the book of Romans, if you've been here, you understand your need for the gospel. I also hope by this point in your life, you've accepted the gospel that's been provided. Celebrating communion is just a way to demonstrate and to remind ourselves that God gave another way. I'm not dependent upon my own righteousness, but now God has given me a way to be saved from my unrighteousness. What God did was he sent his only son to live the perfect life according to the law so that he deserved no punishment. God turned him over to be tortured, crucified, executed, beaten, mocked, spat upon. And all of that was the wrath, the punishment I deserve for my sin and you deserve for yours. That's the gospel. When we pass out these these elements, a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, they are symbols that remind us of what Jesus did at the cross. We put them inside of us. We eat them and drink them as a symbol that just says, this is my but now. I know I'm unrighteous. I know I deserve that death penalty. But now I can live. I've been rescued out from under sin. Paul said, you're under sin. The gospel is how God pulls you out of there and sets you free to have a different choice besides chasing futility. And he won that for us at the cross. That's why we celebrate communion. I'm going to pray for the bread and invite the guys to come forward and help me pass this out. Father God, I thank you so much for the first section of the book of Romans, not because it is enjoyable to read, but because we needed to hear it. We know that we are without excuse before you. We have suppressed the truth. We have bought the lie. We have made the exchange. We have made life about ourselves. And we have pretended that you are not real. Not only can we not live up to your righteous requirements, of what behavioral righteousness would look like. We can't even meet our own, Paul told us. But now, you have made a sacrifice where your wrath was poured out, the wrath we deserve. And so God, as we gather around this table and we pass out this bread,
we remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus gave his life willingly to rescue us out from under the weight of sin. Meet with us. Work on our hearts. Encourage us to accept the gospel, the rescue, the redemption. In Jesus' name.